good morning, Grace Point, or good afternoon, or good evening, if that's the time of day where you are. We are so thrilled you're here, especially if you're joining us for the very first time. We're so glad that you found us. Before we jump into the sermon this morning, I wanted to take just a few minutes to say some thank yous. First, I want to say thank you to everybody who came to our Zoom business meeting uh, this past Wednesday night. It was a really encouraging time hearing about, hearing from our staff, hearing from our leadership council about where we are as a community, um, and really the the emotion that came out of it for me was just gratitude for where we've been as a community and the way that you have throughout this entire process of being virtual, we've grown and not only have we grown in number, but we've grown closer together in some ways, I feel like. And so I'm just so grateful to be a part of this community. I want to also say thank you to Jeff Clark, Jeff Barton, and Jennifer Floyd, who are three members of our leadership council who have rolled off after a three-year term. We are so grateful for your wisdom and leadership uh, over these last several years, especially with all the transition happening at Grace Point. Uh, Jason Turner also just finished a three-year term, but he's back for another three years. And I cannot even begin to express um, our gratitude for Jason and all that he does for our community. The way, um, as the chairperson in the last couple of years, he's led so well, and we're so grateful and excited to have him back for another term. And I also want to welcome Chris Christian, Lauren Thoman, and Emily Isbell, who are coming on to serve a three-year term on our leadership council. And I'm very excited to be working with them um, and just so grateful for um, the good the good leadership our community has. And finally, I want to say thank you to Lisa Barton. Lisa shared last week that she's beginning the process of transitioning off staff, um, not out of Grace Point, just off staff and um, as our youth and kids director. So we'll be looking for a new one. We're going to begin that process to find the right person for that role. And I just want to say thank you for Lisa to Lisa for all of her leadership and compassion and goodness and love that she's extended to our kids and youth and their families over these years at Grace Point. And um, she, she took that program at a very challenging time and has done a beautiful job. And we're so grateful for her. Um, so those are the thank yous. Uh, and now we'll transition. I don't know how to do it. We'll just transition to the sermon. Um, this week, we're going to continue our exploration of the question, what is progressive Christianity? The first couple of weeks, we spent time talking about those words. We talked about what it means for us to be Christian and what we mean by progressive. And then last week, we talked about the importance of metaphor and how metaphor can give shape and meaning to our experiences, specifically the metaphors that maybe um, that I have found that may be uh, really helpful, uh, for at least were for me and may be helpful for you too, um, as we think about our journey uh, and experience. And if you missed that, I'd invite you, you can go back to YouTube, you can listen to the podcast. But today I want to I want to shift and I want to talk about what I think is one of the theological distinctives of progressive Christianity, and it has to do with our relationship to God, which is, seems pretty central, right? <laughs> um, the reality is the way we begin stories matter. The way we start a story is significant because the way a story begins will give shape and structure and meaning. It's sort of the frame that the rest of the story feeds off of. And the beginning point that many of us were given for our faith journey is that to be human is to be a problem that needs to be solved. Not just for anybody, but to be human is to be a problem that needs to be solved for God. That we were born into this world, dirty, rotten sinners, totally depraved, alienated, disconnected from God, unworthy, impure, that nothing good could come out of us. And so, because God is holy and pure and sinless, God can't even look at us as a result of what we've, how we've just entered the world. God has wrath that burns hot against us. And that if we don't make the right decision, pray the right prayer, believe the right theology, that at the end of our lives... We are going to be sent to an eternity of torture and hell. That's the story many of us 
were handed as growing up. Or for some of us, it was the story when we first came to faith um, as an adult. That's the story we were given. Uh, and you may wonder, where does this story come from? Well, the story comes from, it's actually kind of simple. It comes from a way of reading the Bible. Now, notice I didn't say it comes from the Bible. Um, and we'll talk about the Bible more next week. But it, I'm not saying it comes from the Bible. I'm saying it comes from a way of reading, approaching, and interpreting the Bible. The, the story of the Bible actually begins with two creation narratives. They're sort of these, they function mythically. And what they seek to do is give a source of identity, and meaning and explanation. Why are we here? What's the purpose of it? Who are we? That's, that's what's happening in those creation narratives. In the first, God, the last thing God creates is human beings. God forms these human beings, puts them in the world, and forms them in God's image. So in some way, these human beings are God's representatives in the world. In the second story, God forms a human being out of the dirt and breathes into the nostrils of this human being. Now, the human being is called Adam, but the word Adam in Hebrew is actually not so much a proper name at that point. It's just a reflection. It's connected to this word Adama, which in Hebrew means earth or ground. So really, this first Adam is like dirt clod person, right? <laughs> it's it's this, this dirt that was formed into a shape and then breathed into, and it comes to life. Adam, the name Adam, the name, so the first human's name, is connected for the word to the word for ground. Or earth, which is this reminder that this human being, like all human beings since, um, is, is connected to and dependent on earth, which means that stewarding the earth well and caring about the planet uh, and doing everything we can to combat climate change and all those things, it means it's not just some sort of liberal talking point, some sort of radical left talking point, that it's actually grounded in what it means to be human because God takes this human being, forms another one from this human being, and then puts them in a place called Eden, which is a word that means delight or paradise, and tells these first human beings to tend and care for the garden. The first human beings are the first environmentalists. And ultimately, taking care of creation is about the flourishing of all human beings. And so they're placed in this garden, and they're this place of delight and paradise. But there's a sort of a, a catch. At the center of this garden, there are some trees. Uh, and there are two trees specifically that are mentioned. One is the tree of life, and the other is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life seems pretty self-explanatory. You eat this from this tree, you eat the fruit of this tree, you'll live. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil has actually been uh, up for extensive debate and imagination over the years. People trying to figure out what it represents or what it means. And I'm using all the willpower and every fiber of my being not to chase that rabbit for 45 minutes or so right now. Uh, maybe we'll come back to it at another time. But this tree at the center, the garden uh, of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, has a, a warning attached to it. In Genesis 2, uh, the God character says, The Lord God commanded the human... Eat your fill from all the garden's trees, but don't eat from the tree of knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil, because the day you eat of it, you will die. Right? So there's this warning. If you eat from this tree, it's not going to go well for you. Oh, and in the story, there's also a talking snake, which is super fascinating. And again, I'm using all the willpower and self-control I have in every atom of my body that I can muster to not chase that down for another 45 minutes because there's some really interesting connections with the world around the Bible. But this talking snake plays a role in the first humans eating the forbidden fruit. Um, and so when they do, they take the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they take a bite of it. And then in Genesis 3, they both saw then they both saw clearly and knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made garments for themselves. 
During that day's cool evening breeze, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God in the middle of the garden's trees. It's like in an instant, they realized after taking the bite that they are naked. And the first thing they feel in response to this is shame. That shame has an immediate effect. It causes them to hide first from each other, right? They're sewing up fig leaves to hide from one another. So they hide first from each other, but then ultimately they end up hiding from God. They hear God coming in the garden, walking at the cool of the day. And these first human beings, uh, they bail out. It's almost like if you, if you remember the movie Jurassic Park, you know the scene where they're hiding in the, the car and you hear the thunderous steps, I think, of the T-Rex and you hear, you hear the T-Rex coming and then you see the cup of water and there are these little ripples. This is sort of, it sort of reminds me of that. These human beings hear God walking in the garden and they know that they are completely uh, ashamed and afraid. And so they bail out and they hide from God. Now, the humans, eventually God finds them. God's pretty good at hide and seek. And they're sent away from the garden and they make their life east of Eden. The standard approach that that I and I bet many of you were, were taught saw this story and called this story the fall. Meaning that human beings, because of this moment, because of this piece of fruit, because of this decision, the hum, all human beings have fallen from innocence and are forever stained by the sin of our first parents. Literally every single human being is born depraved and disconnected from God. Born with the weight of original sin on our backs. This way of seeing the story has been deeply embedded in all of our religious imagination through sermons and books, but especially through music. So many widely and deeply loved hymns, for example, have conveyed this perspective for generations. I mean, think about this. I mean, this is a well-known, well-known, well-loved hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Right? It sounds so oh, amazing. It's beautiful. Amazing grace. How sweet. And then, like, the second line is wretch. <laughs> right? Um, the reality is, from this perspective, though, we, we didn't, from the perspective of this telling of the story, we didn't become wretches over time. We didn't become wretches because of our decisions. We were born wretches. We were born depraved. We were born disconnected from God. You can say this, we, we come flawed from the factory. And this sinful state of ours that we really didn't have anything to do with other than we came into the world and now here we are. Uh, this sinful state makes God angry and God's wrath burns hot against us. And without help, we will live in that state of alienation from God and separation from God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. The solution to this problem is that God sends God's son into the world for the sole purpose of dying in the place of these guilty, depraved human beings. For the sole purpose of becoming the object of God's wrath and satisfying God's offended honor. Right? That's how it's talked about. We've offended the honor of God, and God has to get restitution. And Jesus comes to take the punishment that God was going to hand out to all seven plus billion of us. Right? That's, that's how it works. And the good news of this story that's talked about is that if, and only if, if we believe in this particular telling of the story, we can be united with God and go to heaven when we die. Like That's the story. Like You believe this, you say this prayer, you follow these teachings, and now you get to go to heaven when you die because you believed the right thing. Does that story sound familiar? Uh, it's an approach that defines what being Christian means for lots and lots of people over many, many years. It's a beginning that puts us in opposition to God and ourselves and the world around us. 
maybe that way of telling the story makes sense, like in a, a medieval feudal context. But in re, the reality of God, the, in reality, the God of wrath and revenge doesn't totally make sense. And this particular understanding of God doesn't look anything like Jesus, who for Christians, he, he's for us an, an image of God. We see what the divine is like in his life. The one who calls us to love and forgive our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us and, and would seek to, seek to harm us, like the one who calls us to do that can't do the same thing without the suffering and death and appeasement of someone innocent dying. I mean, this, this basic Christian narrative for so many people, in, in my mind, it was, it was the, the framework I grew up in. But when you begin to think, like, really? I mean, I, I'm a parent, and I have five kids, all of whom I, I just love so deeply. And I'm trying to imagine one of them doing something and me saying, no, we can't, this cannot be okay unless there's blood involved. That just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem to make sense, especially of the, the, the God that Jesus invited us to be embraced by. I think ultimately this version of the story demeans the, demo, demeans the divine and it also demeans the human. And it calls us to do the same. I'll never forget being at a, at a youth camp um, as a counselor with, the, with our church group. And uh, the, the camp pastor that week got up on the first day and was just a meeting with the, the youth leaders that were there. And uh, he said, I'm not going to do that thing this week where I try to you know, scare your kids or make them feel terrible about themselves. Um, that's not how we're going to do this. And then that very night he preached an entire sermon that did exactly that, that was all about fear and all about shame and all about guilt and all about the, the, the fear response that you should have to those things. And I remember at the end of this service, one of our volunteers went over and sat down beside a kid who wasn't from our youth group, but everybody else had left him. He was sitting on the front row, he was crying so hard he was shaking, found out he's an 11-year-old. So he's, then he was the age of my oldest now. And he's just weeping. And our volunteer said, what's the matter? And he said, there's just nothing good in me. I'm awful. I'm terrible. There's nothing good in me. There's nothing good in me. And I'm grateful that our leader said, uh, no, that you're, you're an 11-year-old kid. There's a lot of good in you. And you, yeah, you're, you're, not, you're not that. But that narrative has been the narrative that has shaped the religious imagination. And not only that, it's shaped this, what it means to be human. And it's, it's taken what it means to be human and says that it's actually less than. To be human is to be, be a problem that needs to be solved. And, and it creates in us this sort of tug of war between, gosh, I, I kind of like being human and I kind of like being alive in the world. And then, but does God, is this what God thinks about us? Is this how God approaches us? Now, the good news is this isn't the only approach to articulating the story. And for progressive Christians, we, be, we begin in a really different place. So, because before the forbidden fruit and before the fig leaves and the hiding and before all of that happened, we find that we were created in the image of God. Before the talking snake talked, we were called good. There's actually a kind of cadence that's present in the creation poem in Genesis 1. After each day of creation, God makes this pronouncement over what she's made. Listen to this. In, in verse 4, God saw the light was good. In verse 10, God saw that this was good. In verse 12, and God saw that this was good. In verse 18, and God saw that this was good. In verse 21, and God saw that this was good. In verse 25, after everything's made, including human beings, God saw that this was good. I'm sorry, that now the next one. It's verse 31, after human beings were made. God looked at all of creation and proclaimed that this was good, very good. Right? When God finishes what God 
makes, she sort of steps back and says, wow, I'm pretty good at this. All of the, look at this world. It's amazing and inspiring and mysterious and beautiful. And look at all these things that live in the world. And specifically, look at these human beings made in the divine image. They are very good. Seven times in this creation poem, God declares the inherent goodness of everything she makes, including the human beings made in her image. In chapter two, as we've seen, this story of creation is grounded literally in the dirt, God forming a human being from the dust of the earth. God scoops up the dirt and forms it and breathes into it. This lifeless lump of dirt becomes a living being. And the first humans ate the forbidden fruit, and in shame and fear, they hide from their creator and from one another. Genesis, we've read this already, but we'll repeat it. Genesis 3, they both saw clearly and knew that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made garments for themselves during the day's cool evening breeze. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God in the middle of the garden's trees. Here's the detail that the other interpretation, and as a result, I think I missed for a very long time. Yes, these first human beings transgressed the command of God. They, they ate the fruit they weren't supposed to eat. Right? They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yes, they feel ashamed and afraid. But in this story, God is not repulsed by that. In this story, God shows up anyway. In this story, the story that we're supposed to take this, uh, this means human beings are disconnected and God can't be near us. Actually, what happens in the story is God immediately comes close to them. That God keeps the appointment for the evening stroll that God had made. These first humans aren't separated from God right? They're not. God's still present. God's still speaking. God is later going to give them some animal skins to cover them up. God God is not done with them. God's not afraid of them. God doesn't see them as a problem. These first human beings are not separated from God in this story, but they do experience a sense of estrangement. And what I mean by that is they feel alienated and disconnected from God. It is their experience. It is what they are feeling. It is not the reality of the situation. The writer of Genesis 2 does not give us a situation where God's like, ah, peace out, I'm done, I can't be around this. Instead, we see God actually coming close and in love and compassion, caring for these human beings who are so scared and afraid. Shame and fear ultimately lead us to that sense of disconnection and alienation. The problem with that is that this estrangement causes us to believe that God is angry or distant. And the shame and fear drives us further into hiding because we believe we're unworthy and unlovable. I mean, how many of us have gone to church and heard that narrative? That I'm unworthy. There's nothing good in me. I'm just a terrible, rotten human being. That's not what happens in the story. And if that's what you've been told your entire life, I hope you'll listen to these next few words because they really are important. Friends, you aren't unworthy. That belief that we're unworthy leads us to maybe allow all sorts of things to happen in our story. It allows us to let people treat us certain ways. It allows us, it causes us to move further and further away from perhaps the true self we've been created to be. You are not unworthy. There's nothing that needs to happen to make you worthy. There's no spell. There's no incantation. There's no prayer. There's no text. There is nothing that needs to happen. You need nothing to become worthy. The moment you breathe your first breath, the moment you enter this world, you come into this world worthy. You aren't unlovable. You're not unlovable. Look, I know know I've got things that annoy people, right? We all have have our pet peeves. All that stuff's real, but you're not unlovable. 
God doesn't have to try to muster up love for you. God doesn't have to kill things and drink their blood to love you. You enter the world in the love of God and the love of humanity. And we forget this and we do things and we behave in really subhuman ways to one another. And we end up trying to earn our worthiness and earn our love and earn and earn and earn. And it's exhausting. And it's this hamster wheel. We just, many of us have been on our entire lives trying to prove why we should get to be here and why we should matter and why our voice matters and our thoughts matter and why we, why in the world, I've got to, I've got to somehow defend why I'm here. You are not unworthy and you are not unlovable. God doesn't need to be convinced to love you. It's actually the opposite. Most of the time in this in, in the Bible and even in my own experience, it's often God through other human beings convincing me that I'm loved. Right? It's the opposite. God isn't trying to muster up love for you. God is inviting you to see that you are deeply loved right now. We have problems. All of us have problems. But we aren't problems. You don't need to be solved. God isn't sitting around fretting over how to fix you or how to get you into doing that. That's just not how this works. At Grace Point, our beginning point is this. We believe that we enter the world inherently united with God. We enter the world and the divine proclaims us good, worthy, and beloved. The spiritual journey is not about being reunited with God. It is about being reunited with us, right? The, the, one of the central conflicts, I think, in this creation narrative in Genesis 2 is that, and 3 is that these human beings are not, they're separated from not just each other. They're separated from themselves. They're, this fear and shame puts a block between them. And it puts a block between us and ourselves. And how many of us have lived our lives in fear and shame and it's led us away from being the true, the true self we were made to be in the world? The spiritual journey isn't about being reunited with God. It's about being reunited with us. It's not about getting back to God as if God is somewhere else, like on the top of Mordor or something. And we're now like crawling across, trying to climb the mountain and get to God. The spiritual journey is about coming to an awareness that God has always been right here with us and in us as close as our breath. The divine name in Hebrew is actually made up of four consonants. Um, Y-H-W-H, um, in Hebrew is yod heh And what's interesting, Hebrew didn't have vowels until later. So it's a very guttural language. But this, this word, which we put vowels in it and call it Yahweh, right? God's personal name in the Bible is Yahweh. But it's been suggested that the word can't be actually spoken in its original iteration. That this word can only be brief because these are very breathy. yod hey va hey They're very breathy sort of sounds. And so some have suggested that God breathes into the first human being and this human being becomes a living being. And when we enter the world, the doctor, you know, back in the day, I don't know if it's still happens this way, would smack us on the bottom and we would take our first deep breath. And in this understanding of the name of God, the first thing we do when we enter this world is we, we breathe deeply and pronounce the name of the divine. That from our very first breath, we're being told that we are safe and secure <clears throat> in the arms of God. And then in our final moments, when we breathe that last breath, proclaim the divine name one final time in this life, we are being reminded that from beginning to end, we have never taken a breath outside of the presence of the divine and that we never will. That's the story. I love how Paul puts it in Romans 8. He asks this question, what can separate us from the love of God? And here's what he concludes, Romans 8. I'm convinced that nothing 
can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not death or life, not angels or rulers, not present things or future things, not powers or height or depth or any other thing that is created. What can separate us from the love of God, Paul asks. And he concludes, nothing. From beginning to end, we live, move, and exist in God. We breathe in and breathe out the divine. Nothing, 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 nothing can change that. No amount of good or no amount of bad. No amount of missing the mark or hitting the mark. Not the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Not the day when we do it all right as if that day ever happens. And not the day where we get it all wrong. Paul concludes there is nothing that changes. Now there's something that changes with us. We begin to believe the fear and the shame and the lie that somehow God can't be near us. And so we just keep journeying farther and farther and farther. And yet we keep breathing the same air. The divine doesn't leave. God, The God in whom we live, move, and exist stays with us. So for progressive Christians, we see in Jesus' life a call to an awareness of who we really are and an invitation to live fully, love deeply, and as a result to participate in the transformation of everything that exists, including us. That's what we see in Jesus. We see this invitation to become aware of who we are, and to participate alongside God in the transformation, the healing, the the compassion giving, the love of the entire world and everything that's in it. I I love this quote from Marcus Borgen. There there are seasons in in my life where I find quotes like this and they just sort of become mantras for particular times. And maybe this is a good one for us uh, if you need it. Here's what Marcus Borg said. We are accepted by God, affirmed by God, beloved by God just as we are. Life is not about the anxious project of measuring up, but about living one's life grounded in God's grace. One more time. We are accepted by God. And maybe, Paul's, maybe um, for you right where you are, uh, maybe just saying this out loud would be helpful. So if you need to read this out loud, just to sort of make it real for you, um, I would invite you to join me in that. We are accepted by God, affirmed by God, beloved by God, just as we are. Life is not about the anxious project of measuring up, but about living one's life grounded in God's grace. Friends, we were born into God's grace. We live all of our days in God's grace, and we die into God's grace. May we know that sense of acceptance that sense of affirmation, that, that that belovedness is really ours. Not when we check all the boxes and pray all the things and believe all the things, but it's ours right here, right now, always has been, always will be. And nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us from the God that we are inherently living, moving, and existing in.